If you've got a Bible with you, open with me, please, to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, to some scripture we've been looking at for the last several weeks since the beginning of this year. And man, the Lord is talking to us. Am I telling the truth? He has said some things to us so far just in the first few weeks of this year. I'm telling you, revelation's coming. The light is being turned on, and I'm seeing things in the Word I've never seen. I hope your heart's open to it. Seeing things, understanding things from the Word of God like we never have before. And church, how many of you here were uh, were here last week with us when Sarah ministered? Did we or did we not get preached to last week? I have been living on that Word all week long, and if you weren't here, you need to hear it. If you were here, you need to hear it again. The Spirit of the Lord said some powerful things through Sarah last week, and I'm so thankful for what we heard. And I've just been going over it and over it, even as a staff getting together this week, talking about these things. And I just wanted to remind you of some of the things that she said. You heard uh, the testimony this morning, how the Lord was already dealing with somebody in the church about recovering all, pursue and recover everything that the enemy's taken from you. And, and how the Lord... He's amazing to me. I mean, I know he was speaking to all of us, but how wonderful he is to to identify one one somebody in this family that needed to hear that word. He loves them so much and he loves you and I just the same. He knows that we needed to hear about rekindling this fire on the inside, stirring up this gift of faith that is on the inside of us, putting life back in that fire again. And just like David, when all looked lost and it looked dark and it looked bleak and it looked hopeless, he encouraged himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord. And he went before the Lord and said, what do you want me to do? You want me to pursue? And the Lord said, pursue, overtake them and recover all. And what Sarah said was so powerful. She said, you have not yet crossed over to that place of overcoming faith until you have turned your pity into praise. There's a lot of power in that. Just like we were talking a moment ago, you can't be in faith for God to provide while you worry whether or not God will provide. It does not work that way. And just the same way, you cannot be in faith to pursue, overtake, and recover all while you have a pity party over how bad things are and over how rough things are for you. You got to turn pity into praise. And when you do, faith begins to rise. Amen? Amen. She also said to us that the call of God on our lives is not to lay down, but to what? Lay hold. Powerless people lay down. Powerful people lay hold. I'm going to be living on that for a long time. And I've begun to even recognize, even areas in my own life, Jeremy, get up, boy. You've been laying down there. You've been easy to overcome there. You've been weak in your resistance there. Get up and lay hold on eternal life. Lay hold on the great and precious promises of God. What a great word we heard last week. I'm, as you can tell, a bit fired up about it still. But let's go back to 1 Peter 5 and the foundation scripture that the Lord has given us for this year. Here in verse 10, the Bible says, May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, say these words with me, perfect, establish, 
strengthen and settle you. Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle. How you doing? Better than ever. How, how's your marriage going? How, how you doing at home? Better than ever. That's the answer this year. Remember that? The Lord spoke to us about this year and said that would be the answer to the question, how you doing? That would be the answer to the question, how's your health? How's your family? How's your business? How's your finances? The answer is what? Better than ever. Now, I know a lot of people hear that and they think, well, okay, that sounds great, but I'm looking around and it's anything but better than ever. It does not look better than ever. It does not feel better than ever. But don't forget, folks, we're faith people. We are people who live by faith and walk by faith and talk and fight and overcome. How? By faith, which means we don't wait to see something before we say something. We get God's words in our mouths and the creative power in his word changes things around us. So even if it's not looking better than ever right now, you say it by faith. I'm not telling you to ignore a problem. I'm not telling you to pretend something doesn't exist. I'm telling you to do what your God does and you call those things that be not as though they were. You declare the end from the beginning and you say in Jesus name, I'm better than I've ever been. I'm stronger than I'm ever, I've ever been. I'm more settled than I've ever been. And that's what I believe this verse is painting a picture of. When the God of all grace, who has called you by his eternal glory, begins to perfect and establish and strengthen and settle you, you end up in a condition better than you've ever been. To be perfected means to be completed, to be developed. It means to be restored. If something had been lost and it was restored back to you, and when God restores, he never just puts it back the way it was. He always does it bigger, greater, grander than it was before. So if perfecting is happening in you, what are you? Better than you've ever been. If there is an establishing taking place in you, and you have turned into the direction and on the course that God's called you to be on and created you to be on, you're not wondering, you're not wandering, you're not turning to the right or to the left, you are established on course, you're better than you've ever been. You've got wisdom leading you. You've got direction from the Holy Ghost. That's better than ever. Nothing's worse than wandering. Nothing's worse than fumbling around in the dark, tripping up on the same stuff over and over and over again. But if you've been like that, good news. The God of all grace will establish you, get you on course, and you'll be better than you've ever been. The same goes for this strengthening and this settling. Stronger is better. We've talked about it. We've shouted about it. And I'm not about to quit. Stronger is better. Being stronger is better than being weaker in every area of your life. Spirit, soul, and body. To be stronger is better. And one of the things that has really come as, I shouldn't say surprise, but as a blessing. Just in the last few weeks, Spending time reading the Word, even in our daily Bible reading, because everybody here at Legacy Church reads their chapter together every single day, right? Yes. Right? Yes. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you do need to know what I'm talking about. Do we still have cards that we can give out? Stop 
I guess in this room on, on the way out, we'll, we'll want to get you one of these daily Bible reading cards. And together we're reading a chapter out of the New Testament every day, Monday through Friday. And it's putting us literally on the same page with each other. And one of the things that has been such a blessing to me, even as I'm just reading our daily chapter, is I'm seeing perfecting, establishing, strengthening, settling. And I'm finding out what a theme it is all the way through the scriptures. This is big in the heart of God. I was talking to our staff about it this week and I was reminded when I was a senior in high school, my youth pastor took me out one afternoon, one evening, he and I were hanging out. I was a part of the worship team and, and uh, he's a good guy. We spent time together and he, he took me car shopping. I didn't have a car. I was borrowing mom and dad's. And we ended up at this dealership and long story short, I bought my first car that night. I bought a, let's see, that was probably 1997. I bought a 1995 Honda Accord EX. It was sweet, man. I really liked this car. I was so excited about it. But what happened after that was I started seeing 1995 Honda Accord EXs everywhere. I was like, there's my car. There's my car. That guy's got my car. Have you ever noticed that before? When your attention gets drawn to something, you start seeing it everywhere, whatever it is. That's what's happening for us right now as we read through the scriptures. If you'll wake up a bit to it and let the spirit of God speak to you, you're going to see, you're going to see perfecting, establishing, strengthening, settling all through the ministry of Jesus, all through the epistles. You're going to see it through the whole thing. The Lord is speaking to us and he's drawing our attention to this. The only issue we've run into is this little statement that's just sandwiched in here and try as you might, but I don't think you're going to find a translation that takes it out. And if you find one that takes it out, don't read that translation. It's this statement right here. After he said, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, it's after you've suffered that he can begin perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling. You can tell when you don't think right about something, when you read it in the scripture and it just makes you uncomfortable, a little antsy, you don't want to hear it. Like, preacher, can we, can we move on enough with the suffering stuff? If that's your attitude towards it, you know right away, I don't think right about this. And so much of the problem, whether you're talking about this concept of biblical suffering or so many different concepts in the word, so much of the problem occurs when we've let other people bring definition to something only God's word can. Or we've let somebody else's tradition or we've let traditional religious thinking define something for us that really only the word can define for us. And if you're hearing this and, it, and it's, there's a sense of dread about it and an uncomfortableness about talking about suffering, I'm going to tell you something right now. You're not thinking right about it. Paul said it like this, I rejoice. What was that scripture we were talking about just this week? Is that what he said? I rejoice at these sufferings. That's a weird way of thinking. 
weird compared to everybody else's way. So we got to have to have our mind renewed. And when it comes to suffering, what's the Bible define it as? What's the Bible say it is? We've also been instructed that we are supposed to count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations. How in the world do you do that? Well, you'll never do it as long as you let this world define what suffering is, or you let some unbelieving preacher define what it is, or you let somebody else's opinion or somebody else's experience try to bring definition to something that only God and his word can. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Our minds need to be renewed. We've got to change the way we're thinking about it. Now, in this same book of 1 Peter, turn back to chapter 1, to another verse we've been looking at. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, now what is this that he's talking about? He's talking about this hope. He's talking about what you and I have laid up for us in heaven for eternity, what we've laid hold of by faith. And he said, in this, you greatly rejoice. Heaven's real, folks, and we're not talking enough about it. The more we get it on our mind, the more we get it in our heart, the more excited we get about what the future holds. There are too many people right now living in total fear and dread about the future. They are so scared about what's coming. And in that same place we were just reading in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus said, stop worrying. The very last verse he said, stop worrying about tomorrow. Stop it. Stop worrying about tomorrow. He said, tomorrow's got trouble enough of its own. Why would he say stop worrying about tomorrow? Well, worry, listen to me now. Worry does the exact same thing that faith does. Fear that produces worry will do the exact same thing that faith that produces hope will do. Faith, like what he's talking about right here, you've got this waiting for you in your future. You've got this waiting for you in eternity. And what faith will do, this is amazing to me. Faith has the ability to reach out into the future and what is laid up for us in heaven. Grab a hold of some of that and bring it into the here and now. Faith can do that. Faith can grab a hold of what's out there. Hope, the expectation of good, can grab a hold of the atmosphere of heaven and bring it into the here and now. Well, guess what worry can do? Worry can grab a hold of the trouble that's in the future and bring it into the present. Is it any wonder Jesus said, stop it? Stop bringing trouble that's in the future into today. Instead, bring the good things that are in the future into today. He said, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, verse 7 is what these trials 
are about. Verse 7 is what this suffering is about. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a misunderstanding and a bad doctrine about the suffering of the Christian or the suffering of the believer. And we got to be clear. There can be no confusion. This same book of 1 Peter talks about suffering for your faults. It talks about suffering as an evildoer or suffering for, as the result of sin. But it also talks about a suffering that is according to the will of God. Now, this wrong way of thinking takes all of that, any suffering, any pain, any discomfort whatsoever, jumbles it up in a big ball and says, God did that. And that's wrong. There is a suffering that is according to the will of God. There is a suffering that is not according to the will of God. And I sense a real responsibility, church, to find out what the Bible says about this. And at, at the very least, in our own lives, be so crystal clear about it that we never again lay blame at the feet of God for something that he had nothing to do with. Let us not be guilty of falsely accusing him. And you and I both know it's happening, don't we? All over this world. People are accusing him, accusing him of murder, accusing him of violence and destruction. It's happening every day. And they're blaming it on the so-called sovereignty of God. Well, you know, the Bible talks about suffering. So I guess this is just my suffering. Get a bad diagnosis. Get told you've got a short amount of time to live. I guess this is just my suffering. You know, sometimes God will do this. And I'm going to jump ahead of myself for where we're going today. But my question when I hear people say that, that God is doing that, that God is in the storm and God is in the sickness and God is in the pain. My question to them is, what's the devil up to? If God's the one doing all this, what beach is the devil laying on? Because there's, there's nothing for him to do if God's the one doing all of it. Is anybody else with me on this? That's my question. Tell me, what's the devil up to if God's the one to blame for all of it? And I don't know if sometimes people either think the devil doesn't exist or would like to pretend that he doesn't exist. But to listen to some people talk, you would never even know that you've got an enemy. To listen to many people preach, you'd never even know that you've got an accuser of the brethren, that you've got an adversary. But folks, don't be ignorant of him. You can't just pretend that Satan doesn't exist and hope that that keeps him from doing anything. Doesn't work like that. I was doing dishes last night thinking about that. I was thinking, you cannot just pretend you don't have an enemy. What if Winston Churchill had said, there is no Hitler. There is no Hitler. There is no Hitler. There'd be a different flag flying over Europe. What if America had just pretended the world wasn't at war? There is no war. There is no war. There is no war. 
You cannot pretend your enemy doesn't exist. So if there is a suffering that's according to the will of God, then we got to find out what it is. And what's going to change our mind about it and change our perspective of it is when we realize that what happens as the result of it is a perfecting and establishing, a strengthening and a settling, that'll change your attitude. That will absolutely change the way you think about it. If you back up in the same chapter, or go back to chapter five, what we read there in chapter one, talk to, talking about the genuineness of our faith, the trial of our faith. That's the series that we've been in, specifically talking about this, the trial of your faith. And he said that your faith, my faith, is more precious than gold. I don't think we realize just how rich we are as people of faith. Rich in the eyes of God. When you've got faith, confidence, and trust in Him, He said, that's more precious than gold. He said, but just like gold, it's tested by fire. And we read in other places, things that Paul said to Timothy. Talk to him about a genuine faith, an unfeigned faith, a faith that is not fake or counterfeit. Well, if you can have a genuine faith, you know then you could have a fake faith, a counterfeit faith. And how are you going to know? How are you going to know if what you have is the real deal? You got to test it. It has to be tested. And that's what we're talking about. So here in 1 Peter chapter 5, again, back up a few verses. And let's see if we can find out what our suffering according to the will of God is and a suffering that produces perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling. In chapter 5, let's start at verse 5. He said, likewise, you younger people, submit. Somebody say submit. Submit Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The first suffering that I believe we see here that is according to the will of God is the suffering of submission. Jesus did not redeem you from submitting. He redeemed you from the curse of the law, yes. And if you study what that curse is and everything that was in it, then you find out he redeemed you from sickness. He redeemed you from disease. He redeemed you from poverty. He redeemed you from lack. He redeemed you from mental oppression. He redeemed you from all kinds of crazy stuff. But what he has not redeemed you from is submitting. There is a suffering of submission that is according to the will of God. Jesus, though he did submit and he did it perfectly, he cannot do your submitting for you. Submit. We're told to submit. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, what that means to bring our will under the will of God, to submit ourselves. And Jesus showed us how to do this. It's a very simple prayer. The prayer of submission is a very simple prayer. Father, not my will but yours be done. It's the prayer of submission. And people hear you say that and they think, well, you know, I believe in submission, but I don't know if I'd call it suffering. You know what you just told us? You've never really done it. If you don't think there's any suffering in it, then you've never really done it. 
It's called the crucifixion of the flesh. And there is suffering. And it is a suffering according to the will of God. If you missed that message, I encourage you to go back and get it. The Lord said some good things to us. But he goes on here and he says, in verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, you have an adversary. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Come on, don't you like that? Whom he may devour. Not just somebody he wants to, somebody he may. Well, if he may devour some, then he may not devour others. He's looking for those he may devour. Verse nine, what are we supposed to do? Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. There is a suffering of submission and there is a suffering of resistance. Resistance. Somebody say resistance. This is what I'm not hearing. And I'm not saying I'm listening to every preacher there is all over the world. And I know many people are preaching many good things. But, but there seems to be a thread of things, and I don't know how or why, but they keep coming across my plate. <laughs> and I keep hearing things taught and things preached. And there is this missing ingredient of teaching people, number one, there is an adversary. And number two, he must be resisted. You hear this said a lot, and you hear it a lot from pulpits. It's okay to not be okay. Have you heard that before? It's okay to not be okay. I keep hearing this one recently, that really faith and doubt, they're not mutually exclusive. Really, they work together because really, don't we all have some doubt? Really, don't we all? He, he knows we're, we're people who doubt. He understands that about us. And so this thing of faith and this thing of doubt and unbelief, they're not mutually exclusive. They can work together. I hear this one a lot. We all have some fear. We all deal with fear. It's okay. It's okay to have some fear. It's okay to have some doubt. It's okay to have some worry. We all do. It's okay to not be okay. And there's like, I don't know, a billion scriptures or so that command us, stop fearing, do not worry, doubt is not okay. Jesus rebuked people for their doubt. And I want to say to these people, have you ever heard of the devil? Have you, did you know there is one? He's a mean sucker. I mean, do you know that there is an enemy to the church? And he is not to be tolerated. He is not to be put up with. He is not to be accepted. He is to be resisted. Get up and resist him. Does anybody else feel this way? You just want to shake some folks and say, stop telling people 
that it's okay to not be okay. I'm not saying you should feel condemnation if something's not right, but I am saying you should identify, wait a second, something's not right. I'm not okay. Am I under attack? And what will not help you in that moment is going, there is no Hitler, there is no Hitler, there is no Hitler. (laughs) Wake up. And if something's not okay, number one, it's not okay, but not because God made it not okay. That was a bad English sentence, but I think you get what I'm saying. If it's not okay, then don't be okay with it not being okay. Find out why it's not and ask yourself and ask the Lord and ask the word, is there some resisting I need to be doing here? I'm not putting up with fear in my life. And you can say that while your knees knock. You can say it while you sweat. You can say it with feelings of fear from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. Just because you got the feeling of it does not mean you need to tolerate it. Resist it. Resist it. Now, if we had time to, to talk about this for days and weeks, there's a lot we could talk about. Of course, we know that one of the things we are to resist with the devil is temptation, the temptation to sin. We are supposed to resist that, aren't we? Right, church? We are supposed not to accept it, not to yield to it, not to fall down to it. Resist it. We're talked already about this. Resisting fear. This is one of the big things we're called to resist and to not put up with in our lives for even a moment. Now, Jesus, of course, is our perfect example of this. And when you look at him in the beginning days of his ministry, just after he was baptized, the Spirit of God came on him and anointed him. He was led into the wilderness and Satan began this onslaught of temptation. 40 days and 40 nights, pressuring him, pressuring him, pressuring him. And we also know that during that time, he wasn't eating anything. He was fasting. And I don't want to take time to go through all that. I mean, we could preach on that for a long time. But if you think about it, Satan came to him and said, if you are the son of God, uh, turn these stones into bread. Now ask yourself, is there really a problem with that? I mean, if you got the power and you're hungry, why not, right? But Jesus responded to him, how? With the word. This is how we resist. We do it with the word. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What Jesus understood about faith genuine faith. And what you and I need to understand about genuine faith is there is none of it unless you've got a word from God. That's the only way to have any faith at all. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by that anointed word from God. In other words, I don't care how hungry I am. If he didn't tell me turn stone into bread, I'm not trying it. And of course, Satan, you know, went on from there. And what did he do? Take him up on the the height of the temple. And he said, you know, it is written, you know, if you're going to preach the word, I can preach the word too. It is written that he'll give his angels charge over you and they'll pick you up in their hands lest you dash your foot against the stone. So go ahead, throw yourself off and, and, and watch the word go to work. And what did Jesus say? How did he respond? How did he resist? He said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. 
What's Jesus saying? I don't have to prove anything to you. Folks, faith is not a magic trick. It's not a party trick. Faith is not a watch what I can do. Be very careful over the pressure and the temptation to prove something about yourself by using your faith. Faith's not a card trick. There is none of it, and you can do nothing of yourself unless you've got a word from God. That's when faith comes, and that's how faith comes. And then Satan took him to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, this has been given to me. I can give it to whomever I will. All you have to do is fall down and worship me. Now, from our perspective of it, we might think, this is not even pressure. This is not a temptation to Jesus. And yet we know he's being tempted. Jesus understands what he's come to do. And what Satan is offering him is this shortcut around the cross, around the suffering. And all you have to do is fall down and worship me. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. It's written, thou shalt love the Lord thy God in him only. Resisting, resisting, resisting. What I want you to see in it, though, is, yes, he's resisting the temptation to sin. Of course, that's there. But I think even bigger than that, and what you and I will have to face, even more than the temptation to sin, is the temptation to stop trusting God. You're going to be faced with that. Every one of us will have opportunity at some point in our life. And we'll be faced with the temptation to stop trusting God. Turn these stones into bread. In other words, meet your own need. Provide for yourself. Feed yourself. What's he tempting him to do? You don't need God. You do it. The temptation to stop trusting God. Fall down on your knees and worship me. The temptation to stop being a worshiper of God. This is the biggest temptation that I believe you and I have to resist. Is the temptation to stop trusting God. I will show this to you. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul writes to this young pastor and he says in verse 18, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So we find out here we're at war. And you're not at war if you don't have an enemy. But if you are at war, what does that mean? You have an enemy. That by these prophecies, you'd wage a good warfare. Verse 19, notice this. He said, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected. Somebody say rejected. Make a note of that word. Underline it, circle it, highlight it, do something. I want to come back and talk about that. Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected, concerning the faith 
have suffered, you hear that word? Suffered shipwreck. Now we've got a suffering that is according to the will of God. Here you see a suffering that is not according to the will of God. Would it be the will of God that these people's faith has suffered shipwreck? No, we know that's not the will of God. And Paul writes to this young man, simple instructions. He says, have faith, have a good, or other translations say, a clear conscience. And he said, you know what? These two things, there are those that have rejected them. Now, when you first read that, you might think, you think about somebody like somebody in this room right now. You're hearing me preach and you're sitting there going, I don't believe a word of this. When is this kid going to shut up? I got stuff to do. I don't want nothing to do with that. Or you hear, some, hear of somebody that's in a service and, a, and an altar call is extended and an invitation to come make Jesus the Lord of your life is, is given and somebody says, I, I don't want anything to do with that. It's all religious trash and garbage. You think, well, that's rejecting the gospel or that's rejecting faith. And certainly there is some truth to that. But what Paul is identifying here is he's saying there are those who have rejected faith. Now, if you look it up, you find out this word actually means to push it away from you. It actually is talking about people who had it, but got rid of it. Or for the sake of our conversation today, fell to the temptation to stop trusting God. And the word he used to describe their lives, did you catch that? They have suffered shipwreck. Shipwreck. And we know this, and I think I see it more now as a pastor than I'd ever seen it in 10 years of previous ministry. That people in this world are living shipwrecked lives. And the waves are pounding into the boat. And the boat's filling up with water. And they're sinking and they're coming apart at the seams and they're drowning. And we've talked about it in here before, but I'm fully expecting that the people in, in our community and the people around us, people who have, are living shipwrecked lives, I'm believing they're going to wash up on the shores of this church. And I believe the natives are going to welcome them and we're going to see shipwrecked souls saved. And, and, and it's out there. I know I've got a friend who, I'm telling you, his life story is one, the Lord rescued him, rescued him out of drugs, rescued him out of alcohol, rescued him out of all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, his testimony includes the FBI, okay? I don't want to get into all the details of it, but when your testimony includes the FBI, you know you are in some serious stuff, all right? And the Lord rescued him out of it. And now he spends his time mentoring young men who are in the same, the same shape that he was in and helping pulling them out of stuff. And he tells me about these kids and their families and the stuff that's going on in their homes. And I'm telling you, it is heart-wrenching. It's heartbreaking. But listen, it should not be surprising. People without God, they are shipwrecked souls. But what about these folks? These are not people who just heard the word and rejected it. These are people who had faith and threw it away. And the result is they're shipwrecked. 
There's a couple of different places in scripture that you can look where, where a storm comes up on a sea and there's people out in a boat uh, on the sea. You can see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New. You remember Jonah? And he was doing his, doing his best to run from God. I know what I'll do. I'll get on a boat. God can't find me on a boat. Well, he did. He bought a ticket and he got on a boat. And he got out in the middle of that sea and this storm came and the waves were pounding into it. And the, the, the sailors on that boat, woke him up, cry out to your God. Maybe he'll save us. But anytime you're looking at one of these situations where these, these ships are about to go down, there's this one thing I see in common. They start throwing stuff overboard. You ever noticed that before? Read the account of Jonah. The very first thing they did was take all that cargo. These are cargo ships. These guys have been hired to take this stuff from here to there. And the moment a storm comes up, the first response is to take all this valuable stuff and do what with it? Throw it overboard. Now, when you throw something into the ocean, it's not like, I'm going to put this here and come back and get it later. <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. All this cargo, all this precious, valuable stuff thrown overboard. Paul, in the book of Acts, he gets in a shipwreck or two. And you read about it, and they did the exact same thing. The storm comes. What's the first thing they do? Start throwing stuff overboard. Let's get rid of this. Let's get rid of this. Let's throw this over. And it's really a common practice. What it is, is when the storm is raging and the, the sea is throwing you back and forth, it's an effort. Check this out. It's an effort to stabilize things. It's an effort to save yourself. It's an effort to, to, to get, rid of, get rid of this. Well, we don't need that to stay alive. I, I, know it's, I know it's worth a lot of money, but it, it's valuable and all that, but we don't need it to stay alive, so let's get rid of that, and let's get rid of this. And you read about Paul's shipwreck. They started throwing furniture overboard. The ship's tackling all the equipment, getting rid of all. This is like stuff you need to steer the ship, and they're getting rid of all of it. What are they doing? Rejecting it. And I've noticed when people get in trouble, even people of faith, and the storm's raging, and the waves are pounding into the sea, or into the boat, and the boat's filling up with water. Have you noticed this? One of the first things to go is faith. They hear all this good faith teaching and good faith preaching and these faith principles and this is how you live and walk and talk by faith. But what's the first thing to go? Faith. Why? It's not working. It's not doing anything for me. I'm going to throw this overboard and do what? Save myself. I'm going to try to save myself. Getting rid of all this faith stuff. What's the first thing they go? Notice this. People's confession. When things are good, oh yeah, they're on it with their confession. Top of my head, soles of my feet, I'm healed, I'm strong, perfected, established, strengthened, and settled. Storm starts raging. We're all gonna die! What happened to your words? Don't talk to me about my words. That stuff doesn't do nothing anyway. You just threw faith overboard. Rejected it. Cast it away from you. Have you seen this before? When the storm hits, it's one of the first things to go. 
People start throwing stuff overboard. And the result is shipwreck. Shipwrecked in their faith. One of the first things that go is their faith in the love of God. If he really loved me, I wouldn't be dealing with this. If he really loved me, I wouldn't be in the middle of this. If he really loved me, if he really loved me, if he really loved me, you just throwing your faith in his love completely overboard saying, this stuff's not keeping me alive. This stuff's not working for me. It's time for me to save myself. You have just fallen to the temptation to stop trusting God. But here's the thing. If you will refuse to cast it away and, and not care what kind of waves are crashing on you. You don't care what kind of storm you're in the middle of. I'll throw everything away before I throw this faith away. I will count it all loss before I lose any of this. This is precious. This is valuable. This is greater than gold to me. And I am keeping my faith. I'm going to say like Paul, when I come to the end of my life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Well, if he kept it, you know, that means somewhere along the way, there was opportunity to lose it, to get rid of it, to throw it overboard but I'm going to be a keeper. Am I looking at a room full of keepers of the faith today? I'm telling you folks, you, you and I know, both know this. We know that storms come, but what we know is not to lay blame at the feet of God. Let's just take sickness. For example, there is suffering involved in that. Would you agree? The pain that it causes the body, that it causes the mind, the torment, especially if you've been given a short amount of time, there is suffering involved in this. But we have got to be smart enough to know that this suffering is not according to the will of God. Me resisting it is. Me not putting up with it is. And there is some suffering involved in resisting. Because when you feel sick and it feels like it's all over you, like we said, top of your head, soles of your feet, and it just feels like it's running rampant in your body. Have you noticed the last thing you feel like doing is getting up and resisting? The last thing you feel like doing is taking a stand against this stuff. But what's happening? You're throwing faith overboard. Just throwing it into the sea. Just let it run its course. Either I'll get better or I'll die, and that sounds better than this anyway, so careful. Where, where's your faith? Oh, I, I threw it over. I'm trying to stabilize things, getting rid of stuff that doesn't seem to be working for me. It's the only thing that is working for you. Be careful that you don't throw overboard the very thing that'll keep you alive. Hebrews chapter 10, just put it on the screen for us. I've already gone too long. Oh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30 something or other. <laughs> 32, I believe it is. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 32. Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, that means when the light came on, you endured a great struggle with what? Sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully, 
<laughs> joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. You know you're not thinking like everybody else when you joyfully accept the plundering of your goods, knowing this, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Verse 35, therefore do not, don't do what? Don't do what? Castaway. Castaway. Sounds like a good movie title. Castaway. Somebody who's been shipwrecked and washed up on the shore. Don't cast away. Don't throw it away. He said, look, you got to think back to when you were first born again. You got so excited about God. You got so excited about Jesus. You got so excited about his word. You were passionate. And yeah, you were suffering. Yeah, there was persecution. Yeah, there was tribulation. Yeah, your family cut you off and didn't want to have anything to do with you because you became some Christian nut and fanatic. But you got excited about it. You got excited about the plundering of your goods. You gave everything away. And yeah, some time has passed and it's tried to dampen your fire a little bit. Come on. Think back on those days. Don't throw that faith away. Don't cast that faith, that confidence overboard. Why? Because it has a great reward. For you have need of endurance that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Don't throw your faith away. Resist the temptation to stop trusting God. There was one other boat. One other boat I have to tell you about, and it was the one Jesus got in. And he got in the boat, and the Bible says the Bibles took him as he was in that boat to cross over to the other side. And as they're in the middle of the sea, this great storm arose, and one translation said hurricane force winds. And the waves are beating into this boat, and it's filling up with water. And Jesus is, of course, you know, asleep. What a picture of peace in the middle of a storm. And they come to him, his disciples, wake him up, which, first of all, rude, <laughs> and start shouting at him. Listen to what they shout. Do you not care? You don't care. You don't care that we're dying. You don't care that we're perishing. Do you not care? And you remember what happened? Jesus stood up. And what did he do? He spoke. He's not throwing faith overboard. He spoke. And he said to the, to the storm, peace. To the waves, be still. And he turned around to these guys. And what did he say? How is it you are so full of fear? How is it you have no faith? What's he saying to him? Where's your faith? It's not in the boat anymore. Where'd it go? Where's your faith? Oh, we threw that over when the storm got really serious. Yes, I know. Good, good faith preaching. God will, God will help you. God will save you. But come on, we're in the middle of a storm. Where's your faith? Now, how did Jesus know they had no faith? It was in these words right here. You don't care. When you start questioning the love of God, you've thrown faith overboard. 
And Jesus corrected them on it. What's he telling them? It's not okay, guys. It is not okay to stand up in the boat and scream, we're all going to die. That's not okay. That's not your response. That's not our response. Yeah, I know the unbelieving world screams it. I know the unbelieving world lives by those words, we're all going to die, but not us. They can row their boat however they want to. In this boat, we don't throw faith overboard. In this boat, we keep trusting God all the way through. Amen? Would you stand up on your feet? Why don't you say it out loud? I refuse to cast away my confidence. My faith has a great reward. Do you believe that? Don't throw it overboard. We're not living lives of shipwrecked faith in here. We're going to keep it, be keepers of the faith all the way through. Altar ministers, would you come? Would you come today? If you need prayer for anything before we dismiss, we've got altar ministers who are here and ready and available to pray with you. Father, we love you today. Lift up your hands and worship him. Lord, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we are so thankful for you, for your example, how you have taught us to resist the devil, how to stand against him, how to resist the temptation to sin, how to resist the temptation to fear, how to resist the temptation to stop trusting God. Satan, in Jesus' name, we resist you. We submit ourselves to God and we resist you. And the Bible says when we resist you, you must flee from us. We resist you. We resist every lie. We resist every temptation to sin, to fear. And we resist the temptation to stop trusting God. We trust God. We trust God. We trust God. And you must flee from us. We resist every attack in every way that you come against us. We resist your lies. We resist your words. We resist your thoughts. We take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of Jesus Christ. We resist you in Jesus' name. We resist sickness. We resist disease. We resist fear. We submit ourselves to God. We submit ourselves to love. We submit ourselves to grace. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lift up your hands and just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So much is said about Jesus in the wilderness resisting the devil, but do you realize the very next verse says Satan left him for a more opportune time. This is what makes Satan such a jerk. He's looking for opportunity. He attacked Jesus because he was weak in his flesh. Hadn't eaten anything. He's trying to get in there looking for opportunity of weakness. Don't be ignorant of his devices. Don't be ignorant of his devices. He looks for opportunity. But when Jesus resisted him, the Bible says angels came and began to minister to him. I don't think we make enough out of that we got to make a bigger deal out of that. We've got angels on our side. We've got heavenly hosts that are assigned to minister to us, minister for us, minister strength to us, just the way they did for him. They brought him food. Don't you know that was delicious? Angel food. And began to minister strength to him. And the next verse 
says that Jesus went back into Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That same word translated power is translated strength. Jesus got strong after suffering resistance. What do you think is going to happen to you? Hmm? You spend some time resisting the enemy. You spend some time resisting the temptation to sin, to fear, and to stop trusting God. Baby, you coming out of this strong. You are coming out of this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Glory to God. Father, thank you so much for your word today. We give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. You got something we can sing as we're dismissed? Listen, folks, we love you. We're with you. We are for you. Believe in God that this year is going to be better than ever. And the God of all grace is perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling you. And all this week, by his help, by his grace, by his spirit, you will be in the right place, at the right time, doing the right thing, with the right people, in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the house of faith.